Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, March 5th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers Huay Chan Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. So Brad is not here today. We were not able to get the whole uh, gang together for this podcast uh, due to scheduling conflicts. He's on a uh, work trip, but uh, we can we can we can have a discussion without him. We don't need Brad. We, we <laughs> the, the 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 show must go on. Um, let's start things off with what we've been doing. Uh, first of all, I've been doing almost nothing this past week. Uh, that's worth talking about here. I've been going to the Magic Castle, and uh, nothing really of note there. So I, I'm going to apologize in advance. My my contribute my contribution to this podcast is going to be uh, minimal, but uh, other people like Ben are going to be making up for it. So, uh, but let's start off with Jacob. What have you been doing this week? Well, as I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, and as you may be able to tell from the uh, less than ideal quality of my audio, I am not at home right now with my better setup and better mic. I am dog sitting for my mom and my sister while they are out of town. So that means my dogs, my sister's dogs, and my mom's dogs are all together in one house in San Antonio. And I am tasked with making sure they all get fed and that they all do not kill each other. And <laughs> taking care of seven dogs. I do this all the time. I'm, I'm the go-to dog sitter for whenever they, they can't... Uh, uh, find anybody else because uh, I'm I'm cheap and I owe everybody favors. And being around seven dogs at first seems like fun, maybe for the first five minutes. And then it gets really, really obnoxious, even when they're very cute. So here's my question for the crew. Do you want me to give each dog a report card right now? Yes. I think you have to. Yeah, okay. All right, so first up, we'll start with one of my dogs, Jack. He is a, a Shiba Inu Rat Terrier mix. He is very territorial. He likes to be the leader of the pack. He's very, very much the dog in charge when he comes here. Uh, he likes to assume control. He likes to make sure that he's always the closest to me. He tries to make sure he's always the first one to get fed. 
but he's also very sweet. He doesn't actually pick fights. He just he's sort of passive aggressive, but the passive aggressiveness is very annoying. So C plus. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be giving like one minute long reviews of every one of your dogs, Jacob. Uh, uh, next up is Carl, my other dog. He's a Basset Hound Springer Spaniel mix. He's been so sweet. He is the goodest boy. He likes to avoid conflict. If there's dogs in his spot, he will walk away and sleep somewhere else. He's an A+. He is perfect. Uh, next up is Spencer, one of my mom's terriers. He is this chubby little thing that growls at everything but never acts on it. He's perfectly fine. But if you get in his face, he makes this really awful growling noise. It seems super aggressive, and he realizes he's not going to fight, which means he's just a jerk. C minus. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like Gizmo. My dog, my Pomeranian, will make these noises that it sounds like he's going to rip your face off. Uh, but he's just, it's all bark, no bite. Yeah. Next up is Murphy, my mom's other terrier, uh, Spencer's brother. He is a lump of a dog. He, he sits there and, and misses my mom and does nothing. He doesn't play, he doesn't growl, he doesn't fight. If you don't feed him separately from their dogs, he'll eat his food, literally steal his lunch money and, and eat his lunch before he can get to it. He gets a D for being a, a bad dog who doesn't know how to dog. Uh, <laughs> next up is Molly, my mom's full bred basset hound. She's beautiful. She has a she's a great looking hound. She has everything you want out of a hound. Uh, she has gotten ornery as she's gotten older, and she likes to play fights in ways that other dogs take more seriously than she does. Uh, so she gets a B minus for being a generally good dog, but she just likes to pick uh, play fights with dogs who don't want to play fight, want to fight back. Uh, B, my sister's uh, a Yorkshire Terrier, the, one, uh, the terrier who can fit in the palm of your hand. She's friggin' awesome. I want to steal her. She has the personality of a giant dog in a tiny package. A+. plus. Does not start fights. Does not take shit. Finally, uh, my sister's Corgi, uh, Lily. Uh, she is the worst dog I've ever met in my entire life. She is aggressive. She is mean. She picks fights. She is needy. Uh, she, I've had to break up conflict between her and all the other dogs. So she keeps on starting crap. And... I've since learned that female corgis are much more territorial than male corgis. So if you ever heard stories about corgis being great dogs, because it's boy ones, female corgis suck. F. Lily gets an F. So basically what we've learned here today, Jacob, is that your dogs are better than the other dogs? Yes. <laughs> what other podcasts can you get reviews of dogs? Only slash, Only slash film daily. Only slash film daily. And the dog cast. Yeah, the dog cast. Uh, Jacob, you've been uh, prepping for South by. That's happening, what, later this week? Uh, yeah, I'm literally leaving my mom's house on Friday morning, driving back to Austin and back and right into South by. I'm driving to pick up my badge, do a couple hours of prep, and then I'll be going straight from this into that. Uh, we have a few major some of the major premieres uh, we've confirmed tickets for so you'll be seeing coverage for sure from a few of the major movies you know, which we'll talk about you know early next week as we see them uh but you know we're hoping to find some of the big discoveries and stuff but we'll definitely be seeing us opening night and we'll be seeing good boys the jacob tremblay comedy the r-rated jacob tremblay comedy those have been locked down for sure so look for reviews and coverage of those uh as part of the first few days of the fest very cool ht what have you been up to uh, this past weekend, I visited the MoMA, the Museum of um, Modern Art. Fine, Modern Arts. That's what I was. 
Yeah, it's been a long day. Um, Museum of Modern Arts. Uh, my friend has a New York Library card, which recently, I think of la- as of last year, will get you for free into uh, the, Gug- the Guggenheim, various uh, museums around New York City that are participating in the Culture Pass program. So she had an extra ticket, and uh, we went together, and um, it was a lot of fun. I have been to the MoMA, I think, once before, but it was a while ago, maybe like five or six years ago, but it was really cool to see it again. Um, the current exhibitions are that we saw were the Joan Moreau Birth of the World exhibit, an exhibit called Long Run, which was sort of about economic and um, political statements, which were a little bit on the harrowing side. There's one um, sort of series of photographs or rather um, paintings of photographs that were of like executed uh, political activists and it felt a little exploitative. I wasn't a huge fan of that, but um, I liked the rest. I liked looking through the entire museum um, as well as like the regular collections. Um, I actually had forgotten that Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night um, painting was in the MoMA. So I was very excited to see it. And um, yeah, it was a good time. Just spent my day, my Saturday walking around looking at fine art. And uh, my friend, uh, my friend and I kind of tried to, I guess, make a game out of it and, and uh, guess what the meanings of these of these paintings were. And you'd always say, we're so good at art at the end. So <laughs> me, I'm great at art, guys. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a lot of fun. That was kind of my, um, my little Saturday outing. And um, I also recently guested on Slash Filmcast to talk about my favorite film of 2018, Shoplifters. I was very defensive in the review of it. I might have gotten a little bit overly defensive because not everyone was quite as keen on this film as I was. But uh, you can pro- you can check that out at some point um, this week on SlashFilm.com. I love the Slash Filmcast, but they are overly critical. Like I, I was listening to their episode last week for How to Train Your Dragon the hidden world and i feel like it was just too nitpicky about stuff i have i'm not saying that movie is a like you know perfect movie like it does have some problems but like i don't know i feel like sometimes it feels like they're not enjoying it to the the fullness of their ability <laughs> um yeah anyways uh ben what have you been up to well, uh, as you may know, my wife and I went to Iceland last year. I talked about it on uh, an episode of The Water Cooler, and we finally finished our sort of recap travel video. And uh, this is the first one that we made that we we shot a lot of the footage in 4K. Um, and we did that for we've done that for previous videos, but this is the first time that we uh, exported the final file out as a 4K video. Uh, so I put that up on YouTube. We finished that this past Saturday. And Wait, wait um, does that mean like a lot of extra rendering time? Um, it, it actually wasn't as much. I, I was expecting it to take like several hours to render. Uh, but because the video, the final thing is only, you know, like six and a half minutes long, it, it wasn't really that bad at all. It probably took less than 30 minutes to render the whole thing, which was a, a big surprise to me. Um, but just the, the video quality is so much better and we just got a 4k tv as i talked about last week so being able to watch the video on a huge screen in sort of the format that it was intended it was um was pretty incredible and uh you know youtube obviously doesn't look quite as good as like the 
the native file on my hard drive or whatever. But um, but I'm still pretty pleased with the way that it looks on YouTube. So I dropped that in the show notes and you can check that out. It's full of all sorts of uh, <laughs> pretty awesome looking stuff that we did. I mean, watching it back, it's hard to believe that we did all this in five days. We just crammed so much stuff in like one thing after the other. There's like hidden waterfalls and snowmobiles and all sorts of insane stuff. So check that out if you are interested in Iceland. Yeah, I think there's a lot that people could learn in creating vacation videos from your video, Ben. Number one, it is short and to the point. Like, I, th- I think a lot of people want to fit too much in. And you got to the essence of your adventure in six minutes. And uh, also, the cinematography is just, like, on point. Like, I, I you know, after seeing this video, I, like, want to hire Ben and Amy to, like, follow me around for a vacation to make it look like an adventure of a lifetime. Because, <laughs> like, it looks like, you know, an epic uh, adventure. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just want to give a quick shout out to Amy as well, my wife. She is uh, she's awesome, and she was like, you know, right there with me the whole way, you know, shooting and editing the whole thing. So I, I don't want to make it seem like uh, it was just me. We're, it's very much a, a team effort. So uh, shout out to her. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading uh, this past week. When I've been going about, I've been listening to listening to an audio book of a book that came out last week uh, from author Ann Frisch. Um, it's his book that's called, uh, magic is dead. And this isn't a magic book, but it is a book about magic. This is a book that, uh, you know, is, is widely available and came out last week. And, you know, uh, if you go to your local, like Barnes Nobles, it'll be like in the new book section. Uh, this is, um, Ian Frisch is a freelance writer. I think he writes for like a lot of big publications, like, uh, I don't know, like Esquire, Playboy, stuff like that. Um, and uh, he, for an article, uh, embedded himself in like the underground world of magicians. There's this whole group um, called the 52, which until this book was actually not something that was really publicly talked about. It's this kind of a private group of magicians that you have to be asked to join. They each have a tattoo of a card on their middle finger. Um, And uh, he embedded himself in that, and he was originally going to sell it as an article. And it basically – actually, I think his editor at, I think, Playboy or something didn't want it. And it ended up continuing, and uh, it ballooned into a book that he sold. And this book is an interesting look at this, like – secret society of magicians it gives you a good look at what is going on in mad the magic world today uh it features many of the people that i uh follow some people i'm friends with uh some people that i watch from afar on youtube and it's actually kind of very weird to like get a narrative story that features these people that i watch on youtube you know almost daily uh, it's, it's like as if, uh, I guess it's, it's if you watched a movie about, uh, the people on this podcast, <laughs> Do you know what I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, it's just such a weird experience. Uh, I'm not sure who this book is for because a lot of this I feel like is stuff that most, uh, people who are uh, practicing the art of magic probably do know it doesn't dive too deep, but it is an interesting story. It's kind of like, um, I guess, uh, if anybody's read like Neil Strauss's The Game or like I guess Fight Club, it's like an introduction. It's like kind of the secret world kind of thing. Um, 
it's kind of in that vein. Um, it's well written. I'm, I'm I'm just not sure if if Muggles are going to be interested enough to read uh, a look into the secretive world, and I'm not sure if magicians are going to gain anything out of this. But I really enjoyed it, and I guess I am a magician, so I guess that answers my question. So that is uh, Magic is Dead: My Journey into the World's Most Secretive Society of Magicians. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, Jacob, you've been reading a lot this week. Yes, I made the conscious decision that while I was away dog sitting, I'd try to get through a, as much reading as possible, both books and comics. So, uh, first of all, I finished Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, which I first mentioned last week. This is the book about uh, black characters in the 1950s dealing with a very traditional, in many ways, weird fiction story of cults and monsters and ghosts and all kinds of uh, magic, good and evil, and it's a really, really excellent read. I, I love how each section of the book, I think there's five, is, it feels like a different genre of weird fiction. You know, the cult story, the science fiction story, the, uh, there's the, uh, the you know, sort of possession story, there's a, a haunted house story, and each one is centered around a different character in, in the book, and they all sort of offer different perspectives on the story, and they all come together in the end in a really satisfying way. And as someone pointed out on Twitter, and I would be remiss if I did not bring this up here, one of the lead characters in the book is the writer for a travel guide for black Americans uh, traveling in 1950s America, and it does more the concept of a green book, or the green book, than the movie Green Book does. This horror novel uh, tribute to old school uh, pulp weird fiction that's also a commentary on you know racism in America actually has more to say than, about the, how the Green Book was important to black Americans than the movie Green Book. So it's actually a really, really fascinating uh, book to read at this time. And like I said, that's becoming an HBO series at some point this year if things go according to plan. So look out for that. But read the book first if you, if you think that sounds cool. And it really is a great read. I also reread for the first time since high school Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. I am preparing for the new movie. It's playing at South by, so I'm planning to catch it there. But I want to refresh my memory on the book because I barely remembered it all. And this book reads a lot differently when you're not in high school. I mean, it's a spooky story when you're, you know, 15 years old. But when you're an adult with a family and, you know, responsibilities and a home, it becomes a lot more chilling. I mean, I don't have kids, but I have enough nieces and nephews to have been more upset by this book than I was when I was much younger. It's definitely not my favorite Stephen King book. There are Stephen King books I like a lot more, but this one is profoundly upsetting and got under my skin in ways it did, it did not when I read it, you know, all the, all those years ago. And I'm, I'm surprised by what, what a slow burn it is. It takes a very long time for King to pull the trigger on Law of the Horror in this book. and But when he does, it feels like he's vividly describing his own nightmares in a way that I feel like not all of his books capture. I feel like I'm really looking into somebody's psychosis and I really hope the new movie captures that because it's very, very unsettling read and far more so than I remember. That's Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. And I've barely started it. No room to really talk about it yet. But um, next book is Wolf in White Van by John Darnell, who's actually the lead singer songwriter for the Mountain Goats. And this book was gifted to me by a friend who recommended it to me highly. And I know it's vaguely science fiction, I believe. Uh, but other than that, I'm looking forward to seeing what this book reads like because John Darnell is a brilliant lyricist. So I'm not 
Well, the biggest Mountain Goats fan in the world. No expert, but I really, really like what I've heard, and I think he's a brilliant songwriter. So very curious to see what a novel written by him reads like. Uh, but other than books, I've been really working my way through my backlog of comics. I have a really bad habit of hitting the comic shop every week, reading a few things and putting the rest of my two-read stack and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll get I'll get catch up when I get a chance. So my catch-up pile was about two feet tall, stacked of comics. So I brought most of them uh, on my trip, and I've been reading through a lot of them, stuff I recommend on, on the show before, stuff that I have no need to really shout from the rooftops right now. But there's a few newish series that I would like to recommend both to our listeners and to the rest of the Slash Film crew. Stuff that is, you know, more well-known, stuff that's really, really, you know, niche. I want to start with a series called Murder Falcon, which is, is a very silly name, uh, written by Daniel Warren Johnson. Uh, and I believe he also draws it. Um, but it's, I don't even know how to begin to describe this comic because it has no it has no right to work as well as it does. The basic premise is that the main character is a heavy metal musician, guitarist, who's who's uh, reeling from the, the death of a loved one. In the first issue, does not make it clear if it's a girlfriend, but it seems to be that way, or a wife. He, he's recently broken up with his band. He's in a really rough time, and monsters are invading the Earth, <laughs> and it's been, that's been happening for some time. And he learns that his music gives power to an alternate dimensional being, a bird-like warrior named Murder Falcon, who is powered by heavy metal. So it ends up being this, it looks like a Mike Mignola comic, like from Hellboy, with these giant monsters invading Earth. But it has this tenacious D-esque love for heavy metal and music. But the relationship between Murder Falcon and the sky and the relationship between him and his friends and his memories of his girlfriend who, who passed away, it's all very Richard Linklater-like. So it has all these things that have no right to blend together somehow working in unison. I'm kind of in love with it. It is so unique and special and heartwarming and strange. That's Murder Falcon being published by Image Comics. I think it's four or five issues in now. I only read the first one, but I really, really loved it. Uh, I also want to recommend Outer Darkness. This is the new series from John Lehman, who recently finished writing Chu, uh, and uh, the arts by Afu Chan. And the basic uh, gist of this is what if Star Trek met the Exorcist, uh, where it's basically spaceship adventures. Except in space, there are ghosts and demons everywhere. So we, so the ship is staffed with exorcists and people who know the the uh, the occult. And it has this very sort of. Um, Cartoon Network style art design, so it actually it looks like you know it would be for kids, but it's incredibly violent and uh, horror driven, and a lot of fun. Surprisingly funny, very clever, and really good if you like science fiction horror and the blend of the two. Uh, I want to recommend Bone Parish, written by Colin Bunn with art by Jonas Scharf. This is from Boom Studios, and the basic gist is this: it's a uh, crime story set in New Orleans where a family has discovered a new drug they make from the ashes of the dead, and Using a combination of science and voodoo, they can let people experience the lives of people who have died by having them ingest their remains. And even though there's this huge supernatural angle involves talking to ghosts and supernatural um, stuff going on, it, it's really this crime story about you know the, the the battle for the New Orleans drug trade of this supernatural drug. And so far, it's very creepy and very good and very uh, very straightforward as a crime story. But in the same way that people would, you know, have a have a, a someone who steps in to say, "Hey, I'm the expert on being a criminal. Here's my advice." 
they have dead people advising them because they can talk to them from beyond the grave. It's very good. I recommend it. That's about six or seven issues in. I also want another uh, Boom Studios comic, uh, Black Badge by Matt Kint, with art by Tyler Jenkins. This is a what-if scenario. If What if there was a secret branch of the Boy Scouts that taught young boys how to be uh, black ops agents so they can infiltrate other nations disguised as Boy Scouts and commit uh, acts of espionage for for the United States. It is uh, very, it's, it takes a little while to get going. It took me a few issues to get on board. I was reading for the, for the creative team and having faith, and it really starts delivering in the past few issues. So it's worth the investment. It really builds a good mystery. It really builds an interesting world. And I'm really interested to see all the details that come out of it. Uh, Criminal is back. Criminal uh, from Ed Brubaker and artist Sean Phillips. Uh, Criminal's been going on for quite some time, uh, but it's never been an ongoing monthly series until now. And this is essentially crime noir stories told in an interconnected universe where each story stands alone. But if you read them all, you can see like how they share characters and share relationships. And the first two issues are spectacular. Uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips made my favorite writer-artist team working today. And reading Criminal Monthly is going to be incredible. I'm so excited that this is going to keep happening. By the way, when, when is Criminal going to be turned into like a TV show? Oh, I have no idea, Peter. I know that the, the first story in Criminal was being adapted into a movie a long time ago with Brubaker writing the screenplay. But uh, nothing ever came of it. So but I think TV may be the right way to do it because you can do – all these various arcs that you know can be essentially be an anthology series with with you know two or three episodes following one character, then two or three following another character. Episode set you know in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and modern day. It's just it's so sprawling. It, it has a if True Detective was as good as it was at all times, it would be <laughs> as good as Criminal. Uh, speaking of this, uh, Peter, have you heard of the comic series Die? I have not. You are. I'm going to recommend you read Die. This is uh, from Kieran Gillen who wrote uh, Wicked and the Divine and a lot of other comics. He's writing Star Wars right now as well, with art by Stephanie Hans. And the basic gist of this, and this is an incredible comic after three issues, is six kids vanish while playing a role-playing game in the 90s and reappear five years later, but one of them is missing, and they refuse to talk about it. Then decades pass, and when they're all middle-aged, and they... And, re- and they get warped back into the game they were suddenly trapped in decades ago. And the revelation is that the RPG they were playing uh, is magical in some way, and they were literally trapped in this actual fantasy world and forced to escape, and it took them years. Uh, and But it's incredibly complex in its character and its world design, and the idea being that these middle-aged men and women are now in trapped in bodies of characters they created when they were teenagers. So it's very much about you know dealing with your nostalgia, confronting who you were as a kid, uh, having a midlife crisis while in the body of the heroic hero you created when you were, you know, at your at your prime of your, of your, of your being a teenager, and I am fascinated by it. It is it's fascinated in how games work and how games are designed, but also f- without losing its attention to detail for character. And issue three is an extended riff on Tolkien in a way that was very surprising. This is not like traditional elves and orcs fantasy. It's very much a, you know, a very almost like a Mad Max meets the Matrix type uh, fantasy world. And the way it, ta- it, it it like confronts the themes of Tolkien in issue three blew me away. Uh, but Peter, you need to pick up the issues for this because Kieran Gillen writes essays at the end of each issue where he talks about how game design and, and games influences writing and how he makes decisions uh, for characters and story beats based on the games he's played. It's 
I think I, you would really, really enjoy this. I've just purchased it on Comixology, so I will be reading this. All right. I'm going very long on this, uh, so I'm going to rush through the last two. Uh, Bitter Roots, uh, David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green are the artists on, uh, writers and artists on this. They're an entire black, they're all black men, which is very unusual for uh, any comic. And Bitter Root is about a family who spent generations battling demons that take hold of humans when they uh, become completely overwhelmed by racist feelings. It is not, it is not uh, subtle, but it's extremely stylish, extremely fun, and it's, it's really, really fantastic to see, you know, I think this is the Black Panther get out effect uh, of, you know, these black creators finally, find, people finally realizing, hey, we can tell black stories about black characters and with stories that are actually about race and don't shy away from it while also being a really kick-ass action comic. So that's a bitter root. And finally, the new Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic uh, from Boom Studios. It's very strange because Dark Horse has been publishing uh, sequel comics to Buffy for years. Uh, they've been like, you know, season eight, season nine, season 10, like uh, comic runs that continue the story and see the characters grow up. This is a complete reboot. It is goes back to the very first Buffy story, but and it even uses actor likenesses. All the actors look like they're actors they, they were in the 90s, but it's now modern day. Uh, Buffy's 16 again, but there are smartphones. Like the first issue, she meets uh, she meets um, Willow and Xander, uh, but it's all 2019. And I don't know how I feel about it yet. The first issue was fun, but I'm very, very concerned that it's gonna, uh, that's going to be like, okay, I'm watching and I'm reading the exact same thing I watched and loved years ago. What's going to be so special about this? What's going to make Buffy feel fresh beyond new technology? And there are a few twists in there. Like, there's a character who, d- who doesn't show up until season four uh, and, is a, and, is a, and is a fan favorite, but she's a prominent character in the first issue here. So I think they're remixing Buffy in a major way. And this comic's definitely a curiosity. I don't think it's a must-buy yet, but if you're a fan of the show, it's going to be something you probably want to at least take a look at. And for the record, the uh, our writer is Jordi Belair. Artist is Dan Mora. And Josh Whedon's name's on the cover, but I don't think he has much to do with the actual creation of the comic. I think it's mostly going to be these guys, but it's, uh, oh, sorry, um, Jordi Belair, I believe is a woman. But it's so far, it captures the show quite well. I'm looking forward to seeing more. We will list all these comics and books in the show notes because there's too many to to round up here. Uh, but one thing I have learned is when, when Jacob is watching dogs at his mom's, uh, he, he has a lot of time to read. Apparently, <laughs> too much time, Peter. Yeah, Itchy. What have you been reading? I finished reading Dracula finally, and um, I don't have much to add beyond my initial consensus. Yeah, it was it was quite action packed. I enjoyed it a lot. I actually enjoyed a lot um, the character of Mina because I was impressed with how um, competent and fleshed out she was, uh, as opposed to what I kind of initially thought she'd be, sort of a more passive character. But she ends up playing a pretty large part in the latter half of the book. And I enjoyed that and kind of her dynamic with Jonathan Harker, who's kind of almost damselly in this. And I, I feel like there's a, speaking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I feel like there's sort of a template laid down there where the, the woman is sort of the um, more assertive one and the male and the man is prone to fits of hysteria almost, which I found really interesting. Um, and um, there, I do think at the end there are like a lot of false starts I guess you would say where I thought like it would be the final climactic battle and then like no wait they're going to go back and just like regroup and figure out what they're going to do next and then there's another battle but it's not really a battle because nothing happens so I found I was a little frustrated by that but I I liked the book a lot and um, I was really happy to to finish that so I could get started on 
Dune, which I bought when I was at um, the Powell Bookstore in Portland two weeks ago. Um, that's the largest independent book chain bookstore, sorry, in the U.S. And that was really cool to explore because it was like a, at least a block large. And I bought Dune when I was there and I've started reading it. And um, I think I'm only like 20 pages in so far, but I'm really liking it. Um, it's much more fantasy, like epic fantasy than I anticipated because I always kind of uh, saw it and approached it as a sci-fi book. And while there are sci-fi elements, it's on the planet and everything, I think it's distinctly fantasy first, which I'm enjoying a lot. It's kind of, that's the the genre that is um, my catnip, as you would say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ben, what have you been reading? I also have been reading a fantasy book. It's called The Name of the Wind. It's by Patrick Rothfuss, and it is the first in the King Killer Chronicle trilogy. Uh, only the first two books have been published so far. The third one has not come out yet. But this uh, property is being adapted uh, by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who created Hamilton, into uh, a couple different properties. Uh, first of all, Showtime is working on a prequel TV show that's set a generation before the events of this book. And then uh, they're also working on a and uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is executive producing that and creating some music for it as well. And then they're also doing a, a live action feature film. And that's going to be more of a traditional adaptation of this first book in the trilogy. Um, <clears throat> so I knew about this project and I was sort of curious about it. So I just dove into the book without really knowing much about the actual plot of it. I just heard that it was a really great fantasy novel and um, it, it turned out to be pretty, pretty good. I, I mean, I, I uh, like I said, I didn't really know what to expect. It's, it, it's about, it's set in a world full of magic and wizards and, and things like that. So it's, it's very like hardcore uh, fantasy. And I enjoyed that. I haven't read a book like that in a long time. And, uh, the plot basically follows this kid who is named Kvothe, K-V-O-T-H-E, uh, and he is like, he's basically the chosen one, like that kind of level. He's like a genius uh, who is able to pull off, you know, these feats of magic at an age that nobody else has been able to do, and his family is murdered in the beginning of the book, and it reminded me a little bit of Harry Potter, actually, because the the structure of the book is that it it tracks his origin story and how he became known to be this this sort of fearsome wizard throughout the land. And he a lot of it takes place at this university in this uh, fictional country that that he lives in. And so there's like, a, you know, rivalries and romance and stuff like that, that all is sort of under the umbrella of this university. So I, I wasn't expecting that to be like the the primary setting of this book but it certainly is and it's uh it, it's very good I, I i would recommend it i think i have some nitpicks like the author is not great at writing female characters and also if this lead character is supposed to be such a genius he makes some really really boneheaded moves and decisions and like there are there are conclusions that he should draw instantly that he does not for some reason and the the book and the author go way out of their way to point out how super smart this guy is but then you know he's just sort of uh uh pretty dense when it comes to making logical leaps that like the reader automatically knows where the author is going but his lead his genius lead character it takes you know several pages for him to come to that same conclusion so those are largely nitpicks in uh in what is a pretty good book and it's called the name of the wind very cool. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. I uh, 
I meant, I think I mentioned last week on the water cooler, I saw Captain Marvel and I gave a reaction at that time. Uh, I got the chance to see it again. And I, I wanted to see this movie again. Um, be, not because, you know, I loved it so much, but I came out of the first screening of it uh, really, you know, being uh, I really did enjoy it a lot. And when I came out of that screening, usually outside of press screening, like, you know, your friends who are also colleagues like will gather and you'll talk about, you know, what you what you think about a movie. And um, a lot of the people I was talking to were not so uh, did not love Captain Marvel. I mean, one person I, I talked to said it was, quote, Thor, the dark world level of bad. So um, not that that influences me, but that, that did make me think, like, was I missing something? Like, like I don't know. I really uh, – it does take a little bit to get going. It takes, like, 20, 30 minutes to kind of kick in. But, like, I really enjoyed it a lot. So I went uh, – I got to see it a, a second time with my friend John, who is a huge Marvel fan. That's another reason to see it because he wanted to see it early. Um, and uh, I I enjoyed it even more the second time. Um, I, I, I do uh, – you know, it does take some while to get started. I I do think that Lashana Lynch, it, it's one of the best female performances that we've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, Ben Mendelsohn as the, the villain is just great. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go on about this because I know other people here have seen this movie. So I'm going to throw this to Chris. You are generally the person on this podcast that I think enjoys Marvel films the least. What did you think of Captain Marvel? Uh, this film, like 96% of all Marvel films, is fine. It's That's the very definition of fine. I didn't hate it. I had fun watching it. I probably won't watch it again. Uh, the script is really, really clunky, and the, the direction is really flat, and I really wish Marvel would learn how to light their movies because I'm sick of this like hallway lighting all their films are shot in. But... The cast is so good. Um, I really like what Brie Larson is doing here. She She's essentially doing like a two-hour impression of every young Harrison Ford performance. And I, I found that really just amusing and endearing. And I, I just like wa- liked watching her do that. Uh, ben Mendelsohn, as you said, is great. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is like as lively as he's been in a very long time in this. And uh, the, the de-aging effects on him look uh, flawless. Um, which is I, I, of... I'm convinced that Disney has invented the time machine and they're using this time machine not for financial gains, but to go back in time and steal actors uh, when they're younger to bring them in for a couple weeks to film, you know, roles in their movies. It's weird because he looks great, but Clark Clark Gregg as Coulson doesn't look as great. And also there are a lot of effects in this which just don't look finished. Like the entire last act where Captain Marvel is like flying around space. It, she just looks like a cartoon there. And there's a shot where like they zoom in on her face and it's very clearly not like the real Brie Larson is clearly like a CGI face. And I was like, Jesus, why did they go so close on this shot? Cause that's really distracting. So I don't understand why Samuel L. Jackson's de-aging looks perfect and everything else does not. My only guess is, they had a lot to reference with him because he's been acting for so long and there there are so many films that he's in when he's younger. So I guess they just had better references on how to make him look young. That's the only 
thing I could figure out as yeah. to why he looks so good. Uh, yeah. There, there's also like the problem with the hairline with uh, Clark Gregg that I feel like we're so used to seeing him with the, uh, the receding hairline, not to be uh, <laughs> rude in any way to Clark Gregg, but I, I feel like it's weird seeing him with a less receding hair. It almost seems like fake. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Like we're not used to it. But yeah, other than that, it's fun. It's a fun movie. It's too long, like all Marvel movies, but I definitely did not um, – it's nowhere near Thor the Dark World bad, if, as that person said. So, yeah, it, it, it's enjoyable. HT, what did you think? I'm somewhere in between you and Chris. I think that the Thor the Dark World comparison is ridiculous because this is a fun, if formulaic, movie. I think it suffers a lot from having to abide by that Marvel formula. And um, it kind of tries to throw, to buck that that trope a little bit and like throw a few more things in. It tells a little bit of a nonlinear story because it, it throws us in like kind of midway through um, Carol Danvers origin story with like some flashbacks that are told in a very in kind of a unique, almost like surreal way, which I enjoyed. Um, but yeah, I think that the direction was lacking a lot, um, not just in the, the lighting and the CG, um, but in just kind of the, the action sequences, yeah. which I found really uninspired. Um, I felt like they were on autopilot for a lot of the action scenes and it felt like a a lot of times, I think this is a, sort of a common thing, especially with um, when Mar- when Marvel hires like independent directors, um, they don't quite have a grasp on how to do the big blockbuster action sequences and tend to throw that to like the second units who have that technical expertise but don't quite have like the the creative um, uh, vision that these kind of sequences should have, especially when there are needle drops everywhere. I found that kind of disconcerting. I was just like, this feels like this sequence should be more fun to watch with this song playing. Yeah. For example. I I, I do agree that the action isn't that great. And also uh, I was disappointed by the score uh, from Marvel's first female composer as well. Um, Mm. Ben, what? Oh, oh, I just wanted to add a few more things because I feel like I just, tore tore through it a little bit but i really liked brie larson um in this i think she's so funny and sharp and acerbic and yet she has like this good role this nice vulnerability to her that i think is a little bit under um under the surface but it does come through and i like that she kind of has a a full range of just emotion and um an arc in this movie that uh, is is well done. And, and um, I feel like, and I do like the pacing too. I think that unlike Chris, I thought this this was very brisk and well-paced and I didn't really feel it's two hour and 12 minute runtime. Um, but yeah, Brie Larson's great. Samuel Jackson's great. I love everything that uh, Ben Mendelsohn is doing. He is just over <laughs> the top. He's the only one I think in this movie who thinks, who knows that he's in um, a movie about, blue aliens uh fighting reptiles so <laughs> yeah i really enjoyed what everything he was doing and goose of course which i forgot to uh talk about in my review but goose was also a great highlight of this film how could you forget goose I know. Goose is like one of the highlights of this movie i know i just got so <laughs> excited talking about ben mendelson that i forgot about goose <laughs> ben what did you think of captain marvel uh, I think HT pretty much said everything that I was going to say. I, I fully agree with all of that. I think, um, you know, I, I agree with almost all of what all of you guys have said. I think it's it's like uh, even Chris, I, I sort of agree that the movie looks sort of visually bland at times and, and sort of homogenized. Um, 
there there was one scene in the very beginning with Jude Law and Brie Larson on like this space train that had this really really cool lighting uh, setup where it was like neon and there was like reds and purples and I was like wow this movie is going to look amazing like at least the space stuff is going to look awesome and then that's really like the most visually interesting <laughs> scene in the movie and it comes like two minutes in uh, but you know I, I thought the rest of it was like functional like well done uh, it's it's not my favorite Marvel movie but yeah. all of those elements that you guys pointed out is is how I feel about it. You know, I, I love the performances. I thought the the uh, essence of what Brie Larson was doing it was really great. Like, the, you know, we haven't seen that in a Marvel movie before. We haven't seen like a female friendship like what she has with Lashana Lynch's character in a Marvel movie before. And now it's really nice to see. Um, yeah, I was going to and... say, we haven't seen a female to female relationship in almost any way in a Marvel movie. Like, I, yeah, I, guess I was talking maybe... with my, I was talking with my wife about that last night and she, she brought up black Panther and that's yeah. like a little bit different, but I mean, at least it's, you know, two female characters talking about, uh, the world and their place in it. And, um, and that happens in, in this movie, but yeah, it, it just felt like more of a, more of a lived in relationship between, uh, Carol Danvers and, um, is it, uh, Maria Rambo, her yeah, character. Yeah. She's she's always wearing a necklace that says Monica on it, and that's her daughter's names. But I got confused. I'm like, are you wearing a necklace that has your name on it, or what's going? On? So anyway, um, yeah, Captain Marvel, pretty pretty good. Yeah, no, I'd agree with all that. Um, I also uh, over the weekend rewatched Iron Man two, uh, and I know everybody's screaming at their their iPhones right now, being like, why? Uh, uh, I'm screaming too, Peter. It's a bad move. <laughs> bad. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, uh, you know, the last time I saw this movie, I think, was in theaters, and I remembered enjoying it somewhat. I I knew then it wasn't great, um, but I didn't think it was as bad as everybody said it was, and uh, when... uh, when I showed Kitra all the Marvel movies, she when when I met her, she had only seen Guardians of the Galaxy. So we went through almost all the Marvel movies, but we skipped Iron Man two and we skipped Incredible Hulk. And uh, we were looking for a movie to watch over the weekend, and Iron Man two was one of those tiles on the screen. So we clicked on it and ended up watching that. And you know what? The movie is a lot worse than I remember it being. <laughs> um, first of all, it looks like a movie like. It's weird because it, like, you know, like, when uh, you were in the 90s and you'd look at a movie in the 80s and it looked like a movie from the 80s? Like, this movie looks like a movie from a different time. Like, I'm not sure if it's uh, that it was shot on film or, or what. I don't know. There's something just weird about it. Uh, the, there's the jokes. Like, in the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie, I think... Or maybe it's longer than that, but like at one point, like I like Tony Stark pees in a suit as Iron Man, and uh, he makes a joke about jerking off in the Senate hearing, and uh, this is clearly before Disney, you know, the the rights went over to Disney completely. Uh, this is a different time. I do like the uh, the Stark Expo, Walt Disney inspired stuff. But it it just seems like such a mess. Like this movie is just like a mess of ideas that John Favreau was working with. Obviously, he was interested in you know a fast car race, and he wanted to have Whiplash show up there, and it doesn't really make much sense. And uh, I don't know, a, a lot of it just doesn't make much sense. It's, it, it's a jumble of ideas. Um, I still don't think it's the worst uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, but it, it is a gigantic mess. 
for sure. The movie's biggest crime is wasting Sam Rockwell that early in the MCU for that role that just never really comes back and never really has much of a, a real impact on things. Yeah. Yeah, there's no excuse for that. You're right. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, my wife and I burned through the uh, Amazon series Lorena over the weekend. This is it's about Lorena Bobbitt, who, of course, in the 90s, uh, cut her husband's penis off and threw it out the window. And uh, I, I remember that happening in the 90s when I was a kid. I remember just being this huge, you know, tabloid story. And, it, you know, it was obviously parodied in that that weird owl song it was it just became this big cultural thing and uh i only knew like the i knew the basic gist of the story for years on like but i didn't really know the details and uh this really this this documentary it's a four part it's four episodes it's a docuseries really impressed me because it breaks down everything and it's weird how um or i guess weird is the right word it's depressing how much it, the events in this movie tie into pretty much stuff that's going on today. Like without ever coming right out and mentioning the Me Too movement, this is very much something that fits in with that because it, it's really about how her husband was just this abusive monster, and uh, he more or less just got away with that because everyone just turned like looked at her as you know this this crazy woman who cut her her husband's penis off and it really goes into how terrible like the media treated her and like howard stern is just constantly like mocking her and howard stern actually like raised money for her husband like in in like a fundraiser it it just it just makes everyone look really just terrible and shitty because they just like destroyed this woman's like credibility and life because of you know this one action now i'm not saying I'm not going to like condone violence and say like she was right to do what she did, but uh, it, it it makes a pretty good case that you know in the end she was you know the the quote unquote right one and this guy was just a, a complete piece of shit and uh, it's just it's just just fascinating to me how the media twisted that and how they're basically still doing that. The, the moral of the movie is nothing <laughs> has really changed which is a very depressing moral, but uh, I really liked watching this overall. Yeah, I watched only the first episode of this, and I kind of got the idea of what it was going for and how it was kind of like the OJ thing, kind of using, uh, you know, using a, an event from the past to, to talk about uh, even the now. And um, I don't know. I, I'm just not sure. It, was there really enough there for four episodes? Yes, I think there is. Really? It's actually like it never overstays its welcome. It's like the perfect amount of episodes because like, like the first episode uh, covers, you know, the event. And then the next two episodes are all about her trial. And then the last episode is like a wrap up. So I, I think it, it, it's, it's really well spaced. Hmm. OK, what uh, what else have you been watching? And that that's on uh, Amazon? Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. And um, I also watched The Guilty, which is a a Danish thriller from, uh, I think it's from last year, maybe the the year before. Um, Yeah, it was from 2018. Uh, It's on Hulu right now. This is one of those films, it takes place entirely in one location. Um, it's about this. Uh, it's not nine one one. It's whatever they have in you know overseas. But he, he's he's basically a a dispatcher, and he gets a a call from this woman, 
and uh, she's been kidnapped by her ex-husband. And so the whole movie is about him trying to, you know, save her life. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's not easy to make a movie set in one place and make it seem cinematic but this movie does a really great job at it. it's like exciting and nerve-wracking and they keep introducing really unexpected twists like every like half hour that like knock you on your ass and you're not really expecting them so uh it's just a really clever well-written well-acted movie um so if you have hulu and you haven't seen this i'd recommend checking it out and that's uh, the... I just want to add, this played at Fantastic Fest last year, where it won the runner-up audience award. It was a huge smash there, so even though I haven't seen it, I can vouch for people loving the hell out of this movie. So that's The Guilty. It's on Hulu. Jacob, in addition to reading Pet Cemetery, you also went back and rewatched the original Pet Cemetery. Yeah, the 1989 movie, and it's maybe a controversial thing to say, but I think it's kind of a bad movie. <laughs> maybe because it's, it's unfair because I it's watched it. It's definitely a bad movie. I watched it the day I finished the book. And even though Stephen King wrote the screenplay, the whole thing just feels like it's been gutted of everything that made the book so powerful. Uh, even before it gets to the supernatural stuff, which isn't very well pulled off, with some very bad puppet work in the final stretch. It just strips out so much of the dread. It strips out so much character. Judd Crandall, the elderly neighbor across the street, uh, maybe Stephen King's best character on the page, has all the stuff that makes him great cut. He just is now an exposition device in the movie. The performances you know, all around aren't that great. The, the whole thing just feels like it's on fast forward. It, it loses all the dread. It loses all of the personality and the specificity that makes the book so uncomfortable and gives me maybe so that made me dread turning the page, pages while I was reading the final stretch of it. And it's, it's a real bummer of a thing. Uh, Mary Lambert, who directed it, uh, she had was most of the time for doing Madonna music videos, but she doesn't really bring much style to it. There's no real rhythm to it. Uh, nothing about this movie stands out, and nothing about it uh, feels personal. And it even cuts the scariest stuff from the book. There's stuff involving the walk to the, the burial ground where the main character uh, encounters supernatural forces. Both walks to it in, in, in the book, one near the beginning, one near the end, feature concepts, imagery, and descriptions of sound that stayed with me and are currently with me. And the, and they're essentially gone from the movie. And I feel like, what an, why of all the things that Stephen King could have cut when he adapted his own book, did he cut the things he cut? And it's not just the horror stuff. It's character moments. It's character development. I feel like he misunderstood what made his own work so powerful. And Chris, I know it's your favorite King book. I, I got to know, do you like this movie? Uh, it might be nostalgia because I, I grew up with it, but I do like the movie. It's nowhere near uh, the book. Uh, as you said, the, the book is definitely my, my favorite King book. And I'm so excited for this new movie. And this one is, is not anywhere close to what makes the, the book great, but uh, there, there's just stuff in it that, sticks out to me uh, you know all the stuff with zelda in this movie i i still find particularly creepy like the way it's shot in this like fisheye lens sort of way and i don't know i i just think the movie is so uh oppressively depressing and they don't they don't make a lot of movies like that and i, I the fact that they got away with a lot of the stuff they got away with uh impresses me but i i would never say it's anywhere near as good as the book 
All right, well, that's streaming on Amazon Prime if you, you want to check out that and the sequel, Pet Cemetery 2, which I have not seen. Um, you guys are putting me in a really tough spot here because I've had the original movie on my DVR for months and I've been waiting until it gets a little closer to the new one before I decide to check it out. My, it would be my first time watching it and now I'm torn about whether or not I should just skip the 89 movie altogether. It sounds like Jacob doesn't like it, but Chris does. I don't know what to do here. Read the book. That's the best option. It's, it's actually... One of King's shorter books is under 400 pages and it reads fast. So I would honestly recommend that to be your best route if you had the time, Ben. Okay. Uh, I watched two other horror movies that are probably less interesting to talk about at least. I watched uh, He's Out There, a 2018 slasher film directed by Quinn Lasher. And this stars Yvonne Strahovski from, uh, from Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. And this is a perfectly adequate slasher movie. It is a movie where a masked man has a woman and her two daughters trapped in their country cabin. And the movie is, how will they escape? Will they escape alive? Uh, will the people who walk by the vicinity get killed? The answer to that last question is yes. Um, it is fine. It is a totally adequate beer and pretzels uh, slasher movie. Does nothing unique, but it gets the job done in ways I was surprised by. I was expecting trash, and I got... Something reasonably okay. That's streaming on Netflix. It's also very short. Uh, and finally, I watched The Uninvited. This was one of those uh, 2 a.m. on uh, Saturday night decisions. Uh, like, what do I want to watch that I don't care too much about because <laughs> I don't want to go to sleep yet? And The Uninvited was a 2009 horror movie uh, directed by the Guard Brothers. And I realized five minutes in, oh, wait, I've seen this before because I had seen... The original film is based on A Tale of Two Sisters, the Kim Ji-woon South Korean horror movie. And The Uninvited takes what makes A Tale of Two Sisters so compelling and Hollywoodizes it very much. It, it makes it less complex. It's, it shaves off the rough edges. It adds a lot of cheap jump scares. And the basic gist of the movie is a girl returns home from a state of mental institution uh, after her mother passes away in a tragic fire. And you start to suspect that her father's new... Uh, New girlfriend uh, is responsible for Mo's murder and may have more murder on the mind. Mystery unfolds. Uh, honestly, the uninvited is streaming on Netflix. It's 87 minutes long, and it's it's okay if you probably haven't seen uh, the original movie. But if you can hunt down a tale of two sisters and don't mind the subtitles, and I hope you don't because you're a movie fan and deal with it, uh, the Kim Ji Woon South Korean version is so much better. So seek that out instead. And where can we see that? If you want to see The Uninvited on Netflix, I'm not so sure where A Tale of Two Sisters is streaming or if it is, but it is worth seeking out. Okay, cool. HD, besides Captain Marvel, what else have you been watching? Um, I got the chance to see um, a Vietnamese action flick called Fury. So this is a film that makes the case that Vietnam may be the next country to watch for sleek Asian action um, cinema. Um, it's a vengeance thriller about a mother whose daughter gets kidnapped. And this mother is a former gang leader who, um, you know, wreaks all hell upon her, the kidnappers and fights her way through this whole conspiracy of uh, a child trafficking ring. And it stars uh, Veronica No, who, uh, for those who don't know, played Paige Tico in Star Wars The Last Jedi. And Veronica No is a star in this movie. She is just so dynamic and compelling and emotional. And I actually really like that this film, despite being sort of like taken for woman, um, is allows her to be 
emotional and vulnerable. There are parts where she kind of just like breaks down crying a lot because she is so distressed over her missing daughter. And the film takes its time to build the relationship between um, Ronica Kno's uh, character and her daughter. And uh, it's um, it's really good. It's um, It makes the most of sort of its more low budget, low key sequences. Um, it looks incredibly sleek despite having a lot of sequences that, for example, take place on like a moped or something like that. Um, it's very good. Um, I highly recommend checking this out because it's um, just the kind of the, what you see a lot with a lot of like South Korean or um, uh, what else, what other countries are like really into um, I mean, I like other Asian sort of like action cinema. And um, I enjoyed watching this in theaters quite a lot. It's in select U.S. theaters now. And um, it is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I had don't have a lot of um, uh, experience with like other Vietnamese films. I'm not really familiar with a lot of Vietnamese um, cinema, but this kind of purports that like there's a, there's a good promise for, for the Vietnamese uh movie business for sure and you've been watching uh some romantic k-dramas yes so this is something where i'm just going to talk about um by myself for a little <laughs> bit because it's a very niche thing and i'm sure no, none of you have watched any k-dramas but um uh i'm going to talk about two k-dramas in particular because they kind of come hand in hand they both uh, premiered at the same time and they're both about eight episodes in the first is called touch your heart and that stars um, Lee Dong-wook and Yoo na And the second is called Romance is a Bonus Book. And that's currently uh, airing on Netflix. It stars uh, Lee Jong-suk and Lee Na-young. So Touch Your Heart is a sort of unofficial sequel to this other drama that I absolutely adore. Um, and I've talked, I don't know if I talked about this on the water cooler podcast, but I've definitely written about this on our water cooler back when we were writing our uh, water cooler articles. Uh, and that drama was called Goblin. That was a fantasy drama in which um, they, uh, Lee uh, Gong Yu, who starred in Train to Busan, played a, an immortal figure, a goblin, who was cursed with immortality after having, in medieval Korea, killed thousands of people. Um, the only way for his curse to be lifted is for a person who is born to be the, the goblin's bride to pull out this sort of mystical sword out of his chest. Uh, anyways, they are, it's a romantic slash fantasy slash um, action drama. And in this drama, there's a supporting couple played by Lee Dong-wook and Yuna. And uh, they have an incredibly tragic and just grief-stricken love story. And um, their chemistry was so good and so palpable that uh, they became, became kind of the fan favorites of the people who uh, watched Goblin. And Goblin was kind of this huge phenomenon in Korea as well as internationally. So... Cut to a year later, and Lee Dong-wook and Yuna are starring in a new drama that's unrelated to Goblin, but it basically plays like Goblin fan fiction for everyone who's just really sad that their characters met such a tragic ending in Goblin. So Touch Your Heart uh, is just the fluffiest, cheesiest, most corny uh, drama ever, but I'm enjoying every minute because it is uh, starring these two people who have incredible chemistry with each other, um, who is about... And it's about a 
an actress who has um, is kind of washed up after a drug scandal derails her career. And in order for her to make her comeback in this big law drama, she has to work for three months at a law firm. And she is working as assistant for uh, Lee Dong-wook's character, who is a taciturn, uh, closed-off lawyer. And of course, they fall in love. And it's great and cheesy. And I absolutely adore it. There is no substance at all to this drama. But... It's like the equivalent of like snorting, snorting a bunch of sugar. It's ridiculous and so fun to watch. Um, and it's currently airing on Vicky right now. It's eight episodes in. I am enjoying it a lot. And on the other side of uh, the cheesy romance dramas is the Netflix drama Romance is a Bonus Book, which has slightly more substance to um, its story. It's about a divorced a 37-year-old woman who's trying to get back into the job field and uh, is finding that with her qualifications, she's just being shut out of like all her interviews. And she's basically homeless and um, living out of her childhood friend's attic without his knowledge. And uh, she ends up taking a job and uh, lying about her res- on a resume about having a college career and just like starting off um, with just like a high school resume. Um, and she gets a job at his work. And uh, there's a there's a it's a fun um, sort of younger man, older woman uh, romance dynamic. And um, it's something that I'm actually happy to see is sort of becoming a trend in, in K-dramas where uh, usually you see like much younger women with much older men. And uh, with this and um, following up the drama Something in the Rain, which I talked about, I think, a couple episodes before, like last year, uh, it seems like there's uh, more of a, a a uh, comeback for like these older actress, older characters, older female characters who are being romanced by younger men. And I'm enjoying that trend a lot, even if uh, there is, yeah, very little substance in these, in these dramas, but um, I'm enjoying this one, not quite as much as touch your heart because romance is a bonus book. Um, The leads don't have quite the chemistry, um, but uh, it's a lot of fun. And the premise is really promising just because it's different, um, sort of workplace drama than your, your usual workplace drama. Um, but yeah, I have, um, I'm not sure if I'll finish these dramas. I have uh, <laughs> often, with K-dramas especially, they, uh, my problem with them is that they often get redundant and or just um, overwrought in a lot of ways. I actually, I, I've tweeted about this. I've, I actually prefer Japanese dramas a lot more to K-dramas just because K-dramas last so long and they really hammer in a lot of the plot lines and uh, tend to get a lot more soapy, whereas J-dramas um, actually adapt um, a lot of mangas or animes and have a much wider range of genres. They don't always go for the romance, but they tend to do a lot of comedy, some raunchy comedy, some coming-of-age stuff, and uh, it's a lot more diverse and often only 10 episodes long, which I like, whereas for K-dramas, you often get like 16 to 22 episodes. That's too much for me sometimes. Um, and so... I wonder, I don't know if I'll finish these, but I'm enjoying these for now. And it's just kind of a nice, um, uh, like, reprieve for me from all the stress of the world. See, some dog reviews and some education on the world of uh, K-dramas. Uh, all uh, in one episode. Speaking of uh, Korean, uh, Korean cinema, I looked it up and A Tale of Two Sisters is streaming on Shudder. So there's no need to watch The Uninvited. You can go watch A Tale of Two Sisters on Shudder instead. Cool. 
Uh, ben has outdone all of us. He's watched more things this week than all of us combined. Uh, <laughs> ben, what have you been watching? Well, I'm trying to, just separately, I'm trying to watch one movie every day. Like, I, I decided that I want to try to do that in 2019 because last year I, I just didn't see as many movies overall as I wanted to. And I'm also trying to sort of boost my um, education of older movies and world cinema and all sorts of stuff. So that's why you've heard me a lot this year talking about a ton of movies on, on TCM because I'm just like filling up my DVR with old movies, classic movies that, are, uh, that I've never seen before. Um, and one of them that I watched this week is called Top Hat. It is the best known work of uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. This came out in 1935 and that's where I watched it on TCM. Um, it is uh, sort of like HG was talking about. It's a, it's a romance. It's like a screwball romance musical comedy kind of thing. And it, there's like all of the tropes of modern ro- I guess they don't really make modern romantic comedies in the same way anymore. But all of the classic tropes of romantic comedies are there. There's like this big case of mistaken identity, which I feel like happens in, you know, every fourth romantic comedy there's like some sort of you know like comical level of confusion that could where the entire thing could easily be uh (laughs) could be like straightened out if somebody would just sit down and have like a two-minute conversation with somebody else like laying out exactly what happens but it turns out that most people you know the, the characters are on the wrong page for the entire movie and that's that's really the drama that's what you're waiting for is for this conflict to be resolved is like all it needs is this tiny explanation and then everything will be fine. And that's very much what happens in Top Hat. Um, I had never seen any Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies before. Uh, and I recommend th- Swing Time. That's a really great one. Yeah, that one is another of, I think it's Top Hat and Swing Time are like their, their two biggest ones as far as I know from the little research that I've done about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, there's tons of dance sequences in here, all of which are, are really great. I mean, that's the thing that I was most surprised about with this. And just to keep it short is that I, ex- I went into this expecting the dancing to be amazing and the acting to just be passable. But I really like this, the presences and the, and the, the, uh, personalities of both Astaire and Rogers as actors, you know, when they're not dancing. Um, so I, I was very, uh, surprised and, and sort of pleasantly pleased to see, Oh, these people are actually like talented actors. They're not just hired to do these, you know, show-stopping dance numbers. So uh, you can check that out if you're interested. Top Hat is available on like YouTube and iTunes and stuff like that. If you want to read that, um, guys, I finally did it. I watched The Day of the Dolphin. This is a movie that came out in 1973. It's directed by Mike Nichols. The uh, some of you listening might know it from its ludicrous tagline, which is unwittingly. He trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. <laughs> and so I was like, how can I not watch this movie? So it finally came on TCM actually also. And I, I DVR'd the hell out of that thing and watched it. And this movie, despite that tagline, which sort of makes it seem like this pulpy thriller, it's it's played entirely straight. There is no winking at all in this movie. Um, it, it reminded me really of like the political thrillers of, I mean, it came out in the early 70s, but like it reminded me of like the, what you classically think of as the political thrillers of the 1970s. This came out two years before Three Days of the Condor, which is sort of like the the um, jewel in the crown of that subgenre. And it, it's very much like that in, in how it treats everything super seriously. And, you know, it's all about... Um, 
these shady authoritarian organizations who you can't trust and uh the plot is about the this guy who trains dolphins to communicate with humans by actually teaching them how to speak in english over the course of several years and then the government or or a, a shady organization coming in to try to to convince that dolphin to <laughs> kill the president and you never actually see the president in the movie it's not like it's it's not um, that that tagline paints it to be a totally different type of movie than it actually is. Uh, the president is off screen the whole time, <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you whether or not he succeeds. But uh, it is a fascinating movie, and and much more serious and and um, well thought out than that tagline would have you believe. Uh, George C. Scott stars in this thing, and it was directed again by Mike Nichols. So I, I'm not sure if you know this, but Roman Polanski was originally supposed to direct this movie. He was in England scouting locations when his wife was killed by the Manson family. So, oh, uh, wow. So I had no happened. idea about that. And Mike Nichols came on board to direct this basically just to complete a four-picture deal that he had with the producer. So, Wow. Yeah, man. I can't imagine what Roman Polanski's version of that would look like, but um, maybe it would have been a little seedier. But this movie is, is very good. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for it streaming, and I can't see it anywhere, so maybe check TCM. Um, I, I'm not sure. It's not on Amazon or YouTube or anything as far as I can tell. Uh, next up, I watched My Dinner with Andre. Uh, this 1981 comedy uh, that stars Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn. They're sort of loosely playing themselves. They're basically playing themselves. And the whole movie is the two guys meet up in a restaurant and they have dinner and they just talk the whole time. Um, I have heard about this movie for years. I We're also watching Community or re-watching Community and they did a, a My Dinner with Abed episode. And that's what sort of inspired my wife and I to watch this because we had never seen My Dinner with Andre. Uh, I found this to be a maddening experience because the Andre Gregory the whole time is just talking about you know, existential nonsense and like his, it, it just, it, the entire thing struck me as like him coming from such a ridiculous place of privilege, trying to talk about the problems that he has in his life. And he's like this rich white guy who like doesn't know what real problems actually are. Uh, and I was very frustrated by the movie because Wallace Shawn spends the first uh, two thirds of it just sort of nodding and asking him to <laughs> to continue and like you know give me more details about this ludicrous story that you're telling and then he doesn't really interrogate those any of the ideas in those stories until the last quarter of the movie or something and that's when I finally sort of got on board with it because I was like at least somebody in this movie is representing my thoughts as an audience member trying to push back a little bit against this this the ravings of this madman so uh has anybody else here seen my dinner with andre i saw it a long long time ago i barely remember it um <sighs> yeah i was I, I saw in film school when i was making my way through roger ebert's you know book of essay of great movies yeah. and as much as it's one of those things where like after reading ebert's uh, great great movies essay i think you can understand what the intention here is but it's very, it's very much not my thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember Entertainment Weekly picked it as it's like fifth, one of the fifty greatest independent films of all time, and I think I watched it around that time, based on that article. Uh, I don't remember loving it. Uh, there is a bit of trivia here, though. But Lloyd Kaufman of Troma Pictures, who went on to direct uh, the Toxic Avenger, started as a production manager on this uh, film. 
yeah, I saw his name in the credits. I was like, what the hell is Lloyd Kaufman doing working on My Dinner with Andre? It's yeah. such a bizarre combo. But um, yeah, this movie is it's an hour 51 and it feels like a three hour movie. I, I can't say that I would recommend it. Yeah. Uh, oh, and the other I'll, notable thing is uh, for fans of The Princess Bride, uh, the word inconceivable is used in this film six years before is. that. It oh is. my goodness. Yeah. As soon as Wallace Shawn said that, my, my, my wife and I looked at each other and laughed like you can't. You can't not notice it when Wallace Shawn says the word inconceivable. So um, I also watched the first part of Leaving Neverland, which is the two part documentary that's on HBO right now about uh, the sexual abuse of two men or alleged sexual abuse of two men by Michael Jackson. Chris talked about this, I think, last week. So I'm really not even going to say anything about it, especially since I haven't seen the second part. The second part aired on TV last night when I was at my Captain Marvel screening. So I didn't get a chance to check that out yet. But man, this is uh, a hair. And, and really, really disturbing documentary. It's really well done, though, and and I think uh, everybody should watch it. So that's available on HBO Go uh, or HBO Now or HBO. I'm sure they're playing it a bunch right now. Uh, and then finally, I want to finish with a pair of naked movies. Uh, the Naked Spur, which uh, was from 1953. It's a Western. And then The Naked City, which is from 1948. And it's like a film noir set in New York City. So the Naked Spur, I don't really have much to say. It stars uh, James Stewart and Janet Lee from Psycho. Uh, and Anthony Mann directed this film. It's it's a Western that is set entirely in like the Rocky Mountains, which I think, um, or I guess the, the San Juan Mountains, that's where it was filmed in Colorado. And the setting alone sort of makes it I think worth watching because I have watched a ton of Westerns and obviously you think of like Monument Valley and like Western mesas and stuff like that. But the, the setting here and the idea of these characters just sort of riding through forests and trees and mountains and there's big rivers and everything. I mean, it's totally unlike the typical Western setting. So, um, and James Stewart is always great. Janet Lee's really good in it, too. I mean, it's it's like a fine movie, but uh, I think the setting is the most notable thing about it. So that's called The Naked Spur. That's available on um, YouTube and iTunes and all of that. Uh, and then The Naked City is a movie that I really love. And I, I would really, it's my first time watching it. I would recommend everybody check this out if you can. It was directed by Jules Dassin, and it stars... Uh, who does it star? It stars Barry Fitzgerald, Howard Duff, Dorothy Hart, and Don Taylor, all of which I had never heard of before this movie. But um, it's it's basically just a police procedural that that plays out as a film noir from 1948. And I think the production manager narrates the movie. I, I'd never seen this before. The movie opens with like the production manager or the production designer. I'll have to look. Oh, a producer, excuse me. Mark Hellinger narrates the movie. So he addresses the, the audience directly and says like, Hey, you know, as part of the movie, not just like an opening title that before the story begins, it's like, this is the movie opens and the producer of the film identifies himself as such. And then speaks to you as, as the narrator of the movie saying, Hey, this is the city of New York. We actually filmed this movie here. You know, there's 8 million stories in, in this city. Here's one of them, basically. And uh, I, I'd never seen that approach happen, like, within the text of the film before. Um, but uh, it, it's a pretty uh, engrossing uh, police procedural. It's just like a, a murder mystery story. This model uh, gets murdered one night, and it's about the, the detectives who are trying to— one of them is an Irish guy played by Barry Fitzgerald, and one of them is just sort of, sort of like a, a street— detective street level guy who's like hitting the pavement and you know going to do the the hard work of like casing the 
the environments and asking people questions and interrogating people and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's, it's like a, uh, you know, it's a film noir. So it's got that voiceover narration all the way through. It's got some really, really fascinating cinematography and the location stuff, the, the setting really stands out. I mean, it feels like this movie was shot on the streets of New York with like half the population there being completely unaware that anything was happening around them. Um, so yeah, it's called the naked city and that is on uh, iTunes and Amazon prime right now. And both hey, of those. Oh, what were you going to say, Jacob? I just wanted to ask Ben, uh, talk about the naked spur. Have you seen uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller by Robert Altman? You know, I don't think I have. No, I don't think so. Because if you like the idea of westerns set in areas that like really are outside the norm, that is set in 1902 in Washington State. So oh wow! It's the very end of the western era. And it's about the end of the western era, but it's all set in the snow and like in mountains of Washington. So if that idea of that kind of story, you know, being subverted in a different location is appealing to you, you should really seek that out. I will do that. Thank you. Um, both of these movies were actually nominated for best screenplay and didn't win. But um, The Naked City won Best Cinematography, which you mentioned it had great cinematography and editing as well. So um, there you have it. Um, Okay, Uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, Brad's not here to bring us the, you know, the the bad stuff. So uh, Jacob and I will give you some of the good stuff or the good for you stuff. Uh, I have recently tried Virgil's Cola. I've been basically I've been drinking Zevia, which is a sort of... uh, that is sweetened with stevia and i love that i love the grape flavor and i love the black cherry flavor and i love the root beer flavor um but one of my friends has uh, turned me on to virgil's cola and i particularly like their black cherry flavor it kind of tastes like a like a uh almost like a black cherry cream soda if that makes sense um and this can be found in like you know, healthier supermarkets. And I think it's sweetened with uh, monk fruit or something. Um, has no carbs. Uh, but I like it. Check it out. Virgil's, Virgil's Cola. And it comes in cans and bottles. Jacob, what have you been eating? Uh, I've been eating, uh, I tried for the first time, uh, Good D's Brownies. It's not Goodies. It's Good D's. G-O-O-D space D-E-E-S. And uh, it's part of the brand of, of keto-friendly baked goods. Uh, the, pretty much if you cut the brownies into 12 pieces uh, from from the box, once you made them, each brownie will be one carb each. And they're they're good brownies. I mean, they're not as good as, you know, the best brownies you've had in your life. But when you're on a diet and you want a brownie, it really gets the job done. I really enjoyed it. And Peter, I believe you talked about Rebel Ice Cream before uh, on the show. And I managed to have it because for the first time because there's a – as Texas listeners will know – the major uh, grocery store brand in Texas is HEB, uh, and HEB started carrying Rebel ice cream, and it is very, very good ice cream. That's only a handful of carbs for the entire pint, and I'm very impressed by it, and plan to make it on my go-to treats whenever I need something sweet, and it's really excellent. And uh, Peter, uh, I want to, I want to know um, how much hate mail do we get for our keto corner here? Do people yell at us for this? No, I, I, I have not gotten one bit of hate mail for our keto corner. Uh, although my friend I went with uh, to Captain Marvel yesterday told me that he fast forwards through the section. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, we go by this pretty fast, though. I think I, I and I, and I also think that these recommendations are not just for people who are doing keto. Like these, like 
before I was on keto and I was not on a diet, I was eating Halo Top just because it was, you know, the less bad version of ice cream. Uh, even if I wasn't on keto, I'd probably be eating either Halo Top or Rebel. Rebel is, I, I mean, I, I've given it to people they don't that that don't know it's uh, n- like a diet ice cream. They thought it was normal ice cream. Uh, also, same with Good Deeds Brownies. I'm not like you said, it's not the best brownies in the world, but they're passable brownies. And uh, Good Deeds also makes a bunch of uh, blondies and cookies and other stuff that's also very good, and I highly recommend them. But uh, yeah, please don't hate on us uh, for the you know three minutes we spend talking about. Uh, we just want to be healthy. Yeah, and we want to share our healthiness with you. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. Uh, I've ordered some keto donuts from somewhere. I'll talk about those next week. I haven't gotten them yet. Um, okay. Let's move on to what we've been playing. I'm the only one that's been playing stuff this week. I went to a friend's birthday, Lauren's, uh, and. She had an escape room in the box. This is one that you can buy, I think, at, like, Target and mass stores. It's sold by um, Mattel, I think, makes it. One of the big company makes it. And it's called Escape Room in the Box, uh, the Werewolf Experiment. It's this black box, and uh, you're actually not even supposed to open the box until you start playing. And then you have an hour. Like, the the premise is that you've been... Uh, You've been bitten or whatever, and you have an hour to unlock the antidote before you are, you will remain a werewolf forever. So that's the premise. Uh, you know, I looked on Board Game Geek before playing this, and a lot of people were complaining that it was too easy. Maybe it's that I haven't played a lot of these Escape Room in the Boxes games, but it took us, I want to say, like an hour and ten minutes to beat this, which is, as you know, ten minutes more than the time limit. So I wouldn't say it's easy. I liked it. It has a bunch of lock boxes, a bunch of paper puzzles. Um, you know, I'm not going to ruin some of the surprises, but it it goes beyond what I thought it would. I thought it was just going to be like, you know, a couple lock boxes. Um, but there's more interesting things in that box of and ways of discovering the clues than I would have expected. I I would recommend it. I think it's like 30 bucks on Amazon or something like that. So if, if you want to spend an hour with, you know, four or five friends, 30 bucks is not a bad way of doing it. Uh, that's Escape Room in a Box, The Werewolf Experiment. Jacob, have you tried that? Uh, actually, I have not tried any of those Escape Rooms in a Box yet. I've only done, you know, the actual physical You Are There Escape Rooms. I've always been skeptical of these, but you seem to keep playing them and enjoying them. So maybe yeah. I should finally give it a shot. Yeah, I would recommend it. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published on uh, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please head on over to our iTunes page. Uh, give us a five-star rating. Write us a couple words. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. There's no book? Wait, what, what's Jacob going doesn't what, have the book. What, what is, oh, yeah. I was like waiting silence. for the Hey Peter and it didn't <laughs> oh, happen. Oh, um, oh, did you not bring your hey, book with you, Jacob? Hey Peter, uh, how could I not bring my book with me uh, when I am traveling? Oh no, let me find it. It is certainly... <laughs> Around me somewhere. <laughs> Are you oh, Googling? No. <laughs> Are you Googling bad jokes? <laughs>
I would never Google bad jokes. I would only, I, I would only find the book. Jacob, I can hear you typing right. Now. <laughs> I'm not typing. That's a dog's nails on the floor of my mom's house. Clickety clack. Hey, hey, Lily, don't jump up. Okay, I, I found the book. Okay. Oh. Oh, great. Ben, don't feel bad. There are many people who have no talent. <laughs> All right. Cutting right to the core. Wait, 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 what chapter is this from, Jacob? This is you know, you know the, we can't answer that. The, the chapter HTTP colon slash slash www.news24.com slash u slash archive slash really mean insults. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, let's uh, see if these are any better than the book. HT, as an outsider, what do you think of the human race? Uh, I guess that I'm an alien. <laughs> Peter, I like to kick you into teeth, but why should I improve your looks? Okay. Chris, I like you. People say I have no taste, but I like you. <laughs> oh. I like that one, actually. That one's yeah, that good. one's fine. I can live with that one. Yeah. 